Hi, this is Lee Sweel with Pursuit of Justice. Today, the Supreme Court has weighed in and said that they will not weigh in on the case of making a murderer. More to come with our very own Aaron Keller here in studio with me, along with one of the advocates for Stephen Avery, the uncle of the man who is actually taking this case all the way to the Supreme Court and had a very sad decision handed down to him today. Let's bring in our guests. Jerry, I'm so glad to have you here on uh, Pursuit of Justice. You're here with Aaron Keller, who is one of our very own here at Law and Crime. You know, of course, that uh, Aaron Keller uh, really decided, I think, to uh, go to law school because of, of this case. Um, he was a reporter out there and uh, and in, in reporting on uh, on this case and and your client, uh, Steve Avery, um, and really, I, I'll let Aaron speak for himself, but reading just uh, about Steve Avery and Aaron's coverage of Steve and uh, and Brendan Dacey, um, you know, it just uh, it seemed like it really changed uh, Aaron's Aaron's life and his projection into law school. Um, and of course, your uh, what what is your reaction now to what the Supreme Court has said that they're not going to uh, take up the case any further? Well, I must say I'm I'm very disappointed that they that I think they passed on an opportunity that that they could have had a big impact not just in Brendan Dassey's case but all over the country. Um, you know, people often ask me about. You know, is this case unusual or unique? Um, and you know, there's some things about the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case that that were unique. In particular, the fact that Stephen Avery was uh, the only DNA exoneree who'd been charged with and then convicted of something so serious like a murder. But um, sadly, Brendan Dassey's experience is really utterly commonplace. It, it happens probably every day, something similar, in court or in police stations uh, somewhere in this country. And um, the courts, by and large, permit it because they really have uh, not taken heed of what the U.S. Supreme Court said the last time that they looked at a case like this, which was 40 years ago, where they they told the lower courts and the police and attorneys that, that they have to take special caution in involving confessions of juveniles because juveniles are different. Um, you know, the, the sort of coercion technique that might not overbear the will of, uh, of an adult um, could, in fact, do that with a, with a child. And, and it's particularly true when you have somebody who's, like Brendan Dassey, uh, underage and has mental challenges, uh, special ed courses and, and that sort of thing. And Right, um, and, to, and to break it down with Brendan Dassey, what happened here is you had a 16-year-old, right? Who right. was who confessed? I mean, let's put that in quotes. And the whole issue was whether or not that confession was so pressured as to be a false confession. And I think that's really the issue as to whether or not that is happening again and again and again, not just to Brendan Dassey, but to Brendan Dassey's all over the country. That's right, and we know what from from DNA exonerations. You know, the sad thing is that the U.S. Supreme Court has not heard a case involving police techniques and whether or not they could be 
uh, unfairly and un unconstitutionally coercive uh, since the advent of DNA exonerations. I mean, back back in the day when people would say, you know, the police would say, look, you fall, you confessed. And they'd say, yeah, but it's not true. I, I falsely confessed. Most people thought, yeah, right, buddy, sure, you know. Who would do that? Who falsely confesses to something they didn't do? Well, now we know with, from the DNA cases that, in fact, people do falsely confess. And, in fact, involving juveniles who've been exonerated, um, about 43% of them falsely confessed, even though DNA later proved they were completely innocent. And why does that happen? Well, partly it's because of the kinds of techniques that are used by police in America, and particularly with, with young people who are not sophisticated, who are easily duped into saying things that just aren't true. And so I was hopeful that the U.S. Supreme Court would take this opportunity to, to, to take another look at what's happening all over the country and, you know, really set some more stringent guidelines, reinvigorating what they said 40 years ago, uh, but with the knowledge we now have gained from social science and DNA exonerations. What do you think Brenda Dassey can do now, Aaron? Well, he has basically exhausted his appeals rights. Uh, his chances going forward are going to be really, really difficult. I wrote on lawandcrime.com that he has about the same chances a human being has running the Kentucky Derby without a horse. I mean, if a new piece of evidence comes out, then that changes the game, of course. Uh, but barring that, if that doesn't happen, in theory, he could re-petition the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals to hear his habeas corpus appeal again, but the chance of the Seventh Circuit granting that is extremely slim. Keep in mind that that's the same circuit that more or less wanted to keep him incarcerated. But he could, in theory, apply at some point, and it would basically start this process all over again. If that doesn't happen, one of the other avenues would potentially be to overturn this federal statute that basically sets up the habeas corpus process in the United States. Um, the chances of that mm -hmm. flipping around in Congress, especially in this political environment, seem extremely slim as well. So, I mean, he really beat the odds getting this case as far up the chain legally as he did with that full panel of judges of an, on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The U.S. Supreme Court declining the case really, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but it seems like that's going to be the end of the line here. Most likely. But what about what, what, what uh, Jerry just, just... Let, let yeah. me just respond. I, I'm not, I, I would not go that far. I'm not okay. as, as um, pessimistic about his chances because there are still state post-conviction uh, motions that could be filed, um, what's called a 97406 petition in state court, which have not been used. This was still, he did his direct appeal and then went to federal court. And if, in fact there is newly discovered evidence mm -hmm. or Brady evidence that's uncovered, and that would be information that would be potentially exculpatory to Brendan that should have been turned over by the state for his trial and wasn't. Um, and that's one of the issues that Stephen Avery's attorney has raised right now, and in fact the Court of Appeals in Wisconsin just ordered his case to be returned to the lower court, the circuit court, for a hearing on her argument that there was uh, Brady information, exculpatory information, um, that was withheld by the state until just this past April of 2018, 12 years after the fact. So if Brendan 
uses those methods, um, he might still have an opportunity. Um, and of course, if in fact uh, Attorney Zellner is able to do more than just uh, reopen the Stephen Avery conviction, but actually find who the real perpetrator is that isn't Brendan, then of course that would help him as well. So, uh, you know, I'm not as pessimistic about his chances going forward, but it's disappointing because it, it really means he's very likely going to sit in prison for a long time, um, you know, possibly years yet before he can ever get another chance at this. Aaron, let me ask you, from the optics of this for the Supreme Court, uh, Jared makes a, a really good case just a few minutes ago. You got a 16-year-old kid. You got a confession that sounds like it was coerced. You got somebody with, you know, mental issues uh, would just about say anything. This is from the optics of it. Why not give him a chance in front of the Supreme Court to argue this? You'd have to ask the justices of the Supreme Court, but apparently they didn't think that the legal issue was novel enough to warrant picking the case up. And certainly uh, there's an empathy side that uh, a lot of people feel, right. and, and correctly so, that they're just not comfortable with what happened. But apparently the court must have determined that the issue just... Uh, they're not watching Netflix? Uh, wasn't, perhaps not. Um, and, and then you have to ask the next argument, uh, which would really disturb me, and that is that uh, I don't know if the Supreme Court should be in the business of accepting cases just because they're famous. Uh, the court should accept cases because the legal issues are novel. Um, you know, we don't have any window into why they decided not to accept this one. Perhaps the court is comfortable with the area of law here. Um, perhaps uh, a couple of justices wanted to take the case. Uh, we just don't know. You need four justices to vote to take a case. Apparently, four justices did not vote. We don't know if anyone voted for it because no one filed a dissent to the court's decision not to pick up the case. If someone had filed a dissent, we would know that there was at least one proponent of Brendan Dassey sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court, but we don't even have that information because no one filed a dissent. So we don't know what the, what the count was then on the Supreme Court? No. No, we don't, and that's typical. Uh, when they deny certiorari, they usually just do it in a one-sentence uh, the motion, the petition is denied. Um, so, you know, and I, and I agree with Aaron. I don't think a reason to take the case is because it involves something famous. Um, but I do think that there, it was, this case was, was ideally situated. There was actually six different amicus curiae briefs filed from other organizations, including current and former prosecutors, American Psycholo Psychological Association, um, law professors, people who train police, um, a lot of groups that were, were really looking at the bigger picture, not just Brendan Dassey. And uh, as much as, as I and many viewers who watch Making a Murderer feel for, for Brendan Dassey himself and what he went through, uh, there is a much, much bigger concern about right. what's happening with juveniles all over this right. country. And, and, and I would argue that at this point, people who are unhappy with that process need to get organized and get their legislators to change right. uh, statutes, because that can easily be done. California and Illinois have already passed laws that 
prohibit interrogations of, of juveniles, uh, at least under 15, I think, uh, without an attorney present, and you can't even waive the, the right to an attorney. Right. Dassey's not talking about uh, just a, a regular old interrogation. He's, they're talking about a 16-year-old kid basically tricked into confessing to the crime by, you know, smarter, more experienced interrogators who fed them him details about the crime that he, he wouldn't have known. This is taking it from his perspective, right? right. Um, and they promised him leniency if he agreed. This is a 16-year-old with mental um, issues, with, uh, you know, and, and that he went along with it in part up because of his borderline IQ. This is what the team argued, the, the, the Dassey team argued. Now, if you take it from that perspective and you wend that out, you broaden that out to other Dasseys out there, and you look at it from a societal perspective, that's a pretty scary thing from a justice perspective from, you know, I don't want my 14-year-old kid, my 16-year-old kid, if he's potentially a suspect in anything, being bamboozled by some 40-year-old cop who just wants to, you know, finish up his case and go home because he thinks he's got the right guy and he's going to bamboozle him into saying something and commit and a crime he didn't commit. I have to agree with you, Lise. I mean, one thing that does disturb me about this, and, and um, you know, I sat and looked at this from an impartial standpoint as a journalist and tried to adequately cover each side as fairly as I could. And look, I understand law enforcement has a job to do. Uh, even my criminal law professor in law school used to say, I don't have a problem with criminals being punished and being deterred in some way. But we want that to happen within the constitutional constraints that protect all of us. Right. One of the things that bothered me about this, and look, I'm not passing judgment on whether or not Brendan Dassey's confession was coerced or whether parts of it were accurate. But, but look, even if um, putting myself in his shoes, if I were his age, knowing the way that I looked at the world when I was his age, being taught to respect authority, exactly. being taught that the police were the yes, good ma'am. guys, yes, sir. you know, um, that they're there to help everyone. Um, I really uh, don't know how I would have responded to some of the promises that, um, you know, that were made here, the, the promises of leniency, the paternalistic uh, right. emphasis, the, right. the touching Brendan on the knee saying, look, you know, you need to tell the truth and everything. Now, I also remember my own father's lectures to me saying, you stick to your guns, right, right. don't cave, but, but even, you, even if a teacher is trying to accuse me of you, something. Aaron Keller, with your intelligence level, we're not talking about And, and even kid. I would probably feel some degree of coercion in there an interview like that. There you go. So we're talking this borderline kid IQ we don't know what his parental you know situation is I mean that's the thing you've got to put yourself in his boots and that's right. that's so now, a scary so now, thing now, now put yourself in in parents shoes because mm -hmm. you know p parents now um, when historically we've told our children we've taught our children to respect authority and to cooperate with the police um, now, I would argue you, you should not nope. do that. You don't but say a word. Parent, you tell your child, do not mm -hmm. talk to the police yep. ever. Period. Absolutely. 
that you just can't take the chance that you're not going to run Do up against Do not be some, helpful. Some detective who's going to bamboozle them. Yep. And, and also keep in mind that for every false confession, that usually means that there's the real perpetrator who goes free, assuming right. that there's a crime at all. Um, so, and here there you know, clearly is. Right, here's a dead person. Here right. there clearly is, correct. There may be some times where there isn't and, and people are confessing anyway. But, um, but you know, it's, that's a sea change in the way we view our police and the way we teach our children and, to view police. And especially because we know that there is literature. None of us, none of the three here, here are psychologists unless, unless you guys are and I don't know about it. But I know that there is psychological um, research out there that has been proven that some people are susceptible to false confessions, to doing this, because they want to be either liked or accepted or they're vulnerable or something. Now, the three of us can sit here and say, not me, I wouldn't do it, I would never render a false confession. But a kid like this, for whatever That's reason, right. could, could be one of exactly those persons and at borderline IQ, all of that. The research, I'm telling you guys, is there, and it's it was supported in in this um, in 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 Dassey's case. So, I, you know, I'm not saying whether the Supreme Court got it right or wrong. I'm just saying that um, that it really it is supported. the The literature there is supported, and I do think that um, whether you know the Supreme, Supreme Court may not have been taking it, but this is not going away anytime soon. You know, you raise a, good, a really great point, Lise, and one issue here, Jerry, is not just the underlying facts, which is what we're all talking about, but the federal statute that says the courts at the federal level really have to give deference to the state courts. And, you know, there's this line in the Seventh Circuit en banc opinion. That's the whole panel of judges that heard the case before it was appealed to the Supreme Court. And there's this line, Jerry, and I wanted to ask you about this uh, from Judge Hamilton, who wrote for the majority, said the state court's finding that Dassey's confession was voluntary was not beyond fair debate, but we conclude it was reasonable. And it sounds to me like there's a, a argument wrapped up in that line say. that Judge Hamilton is saying, look, um, I have to give deference to the state and the state wants to lock, keep them locked up here. And, and that's what that line says to me, Jerry. I'm not sure what you think. Am I reading it wrong, or do you agree with me? No, and I think on a broader level, it's also it, it's a commentary on on the habeas statute and how difficult it is to get a, uh, a federal court to reverse a state court conviction. But even even more interesting than that, in some ways, is the state of Wisconsin's response to the petition for certiorari. Basically, towards the end of the of their response, it says. You know, yeah, there may come a time when this court should say that the techniques that are used by the police against juveniles, like were used in this case, are improper. But because this is in, before the court on habeas review instead of, let's say, a direct review from uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court or whatever state Supreme Court, this is not the case to do it. And I, you know, that tells me that that even the state knows that these. Right. These techniques are dangerous and, and shouldn't be employed. And unfortunately, because the, the the U.S. Supreme Court didn't take the case, it's now going to be left to the legislatures. The people must demand uh, that they change the law to to preclude these kinds of techniques. There's nothing about the 
case law that would prohibit an individual legislator or even municipalities for that matter uh, from changing the law and saying we are not going to allow you to interrogate children anymore without an attorney present period and that's I'm afraid uh, the remedy we're going to need at this point because I agree with Aaron I think that the chance of getting Congress to modify the habeas corpus statute at this point as just dysfunctional as our federal government is um, is slim and none but the state legislatures have their own individual power to I mean they control 90 some percent of criminal prosecutions anyway Mm -hmm. and it's simply a matter of them saying we are not going to allow this kind of evidence anymore and we are going to prohibit the police from interrogating juveniles without an attorney present I mean, everybody who's looked at this case has sort of given this little nod that something is just feeling uncomfortable about it. And this is what led me to do so much of the journalism that I did more than a decade ago when covering the case, Jerry, back when you were defending Stephen Avery, that, you know, I look at it and say, okay, you know, even if, and and this is is just a, a logical premise, even if these two defendants did this hook, line, and sinker, okay, if we just assume that as being true for the sake of argument, there was still something wrong with the way the state went after this, and that's what always bugged me. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. And I think we're starting to see that language bubble up. Jerry, as you mentioned, from the state's argument that the U.S. Supreme Court shouldn't take the case, and from Judge Hamilton's uh, majority opinion with the Seventh Circuit— There's just something about this that makes people uncomfortable and that leaves people feeling that we could do better. And I know, Jerry, you bring a lot of that up in your book. Yeah, I do. And I I think that, you know, it's time to get rid of this illusion of justice, as I call it, in America, where we we just, uh, you know, slap a conviction on somebody. We make it extremely difficult to get an appellate court to reverse it, even in the face of very strong evidence. Um, many people don't have very good representation uh, by the attorneys that are given to them, you know, particularly indigent people. Um, attorneys who aren't very well trained, attorneys like uh, Brendan Dassey had, as you saw in Making a Murderer at, at the trial level. Now he's got very good attorneys on appeal, but it, the burdens and the obstacles that are thrown up to try and uh, prevent somebody from getting a new trial even in the face of compelling reasons, uh, that needs to change. And, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm hopeful. I've, I've got, there's other suggestions I've got in my book about way, ways that we can try and improve the flaws in our criminal justice system because the ones that are illustrated in Brendan's case, um, as commonplace as they are, sadly, they're not the only ones we have to deal with in this country. And there are things that people can do. We've got to be careful, much more careful about who we elect as sheriffs and prosecutors and judges in those states where there are elected judges. Um, People need to take ownership in their court systems and really demand better before uh, before we can shake this up and get us back to what we hope, what we really think the founders of our country would have hoped uh, when it comes to criminal justice. So, Jerry, you mentioned you've got a book out. I, I want to I want to know what the book, the name, the title of the book is. Yeah, it's called "Illusion of Justice: oh. Inside Making a Murderer and America's Broken System." It came out last year, and it's um, okay. it's sort of a memoir. It's not just about 
the Stephen Avery and, and Brendan Dassey cases, but other cases I've handled personally in my career in which some of the similar flaws that you saw in making a murderer are also illustrated to show that they do happen and with, with shocking frequency. Um, and there's a lesson in the book as well, because one of the other big cases I talk about uh, was a case that came out of Dane County, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, when it comes to persistence and how long it takes sometimes to get justice. I represented this gentleman, Ralph Armstrong, for 15 years before we finally um, got his conviction reversed and ultimately dismissed. Uh, but by that time, he'd spent 29 years in prison, wrongly convicted. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Brendan's hopes are not completely squashed, um, but it means he's probably going to spend longer uh, in prison, wrongly, in my opinion. Um, he has good attorneys that are going to continue to represent him. And, uh, you know, but, but I, I, as I discuss in my book, there are things we can do now individually, some simple, some more difficult, because it's, our justice system has been broken and, and sliding into disarray for, for decades now. So some of the things will take a long time, but some of them can be done uh, quickly and individually if we all take ownership in our system. Well, that's so important because we all here um, are about the pursuit of justice because we don't want the just the illusion of justice. We want to really pursue justice. And I agree with you, and I know Aaron does as well, that to do that, we need to be active. We need to be on it. We need to be vigilant. And uh, whether or not we think that Dassey here actually committed the crime or not, he deserves to have a process and uh, be and be treated fairly and yes. the process be fair. Exactly. I mean, I think there's a couple of components to this. And just to piggyback off of what you've said, Jerry, because you speak about these issues, I speak about these issues. Um, you know, look, this takes a couple of elements. It takes education. People need to learn more about how their court system functions. They need to not demonize prosecutors and judges if there's an accused criminal who is acquitted or not indicted. A lot of people will sit around and say, oh, you know, I heard that that guy did that crime and he was let free. I'm going to vote against the guy who was in charge of the case. And that oversimplification of the system is damaging, but we see it time and time again. We need more journalists, like some of the ones who covered your case, Jerry, and then Brendan Dassey's case, who, when the state makes a move that just doesn't smell right, or when the state lies to the press corps flat out, and says something or makes a promise and then they turn around and flip and do the opposite thing, you need to have journalists who want to go at them and say, you said one thing, you did another, and unfortunately there are too few of us out there. Well, yes, and Aaron Kelly would be one of them that does actually does that and sticks with it. So, um, you know, I'm proud to have him here at Long Crime and to be his here. Yeah, and I pre I agree with Aaron, and I appreciate your your effort to do that, and as well as your producers, because it it takes more than just the individual journalist to to get the message out. And that's right, Deb Hubberman is our executive producer, and she's sitting right here, and we, we couldn't do the show without Deborah. So um, that's, that's right. absolutely right. So thank you all so much for being here today and for talking about the case and uh, Supreme Court. 
uh, does not go ahead with the um, petition for Brendan Dassey um, in uh, in his case. So he will not. Uh, in the, you, know, you know him from Making a Murder, uh, the Netflix series. He will the the his Supreme Court um, uh, trial or try goes ends right here today. Uh, but uh, pursuit of justice does not end. Uh, but uh, so stick with us. We'll be back next week. See, till then. Lee Wheels signing off.